I face the barren waste without the taste of water. As you mentioned a moment ago, uh, last week's program where we talked about water generated several pieces of mail. As we've talked about many times in the program, there's currently an effort afoot to build a peripheral canal in California, which will divert water around our delta and allow it to be sent south into the San Joaquin Valley and beyond that into Southern California. We've taken the position on this program that this has nothing whatsoever to do with fixing the delta. It also has nothing whatsoever to do with fixing the fisheries in California. What it has to do with is taking a current system, which people estimate may have a two chances in three of failing over the next several decades, the system by which we take water out of the Delta and ship it south. It's precarious. It's threatened by earthquakes. It's threatened by collapse of the levees. And people would like to have a more reliable system in place to ship water south. And that really is what it's all about, shipping water south. I'm sure that we could easily devote an entire hour to this topic alone and only scratch the surface. So today I want to set aside, I don't know, about 15 minutes to talk about this, starting with a letter we received from Chris. When we first started this program, Chris lived in Davis, was interested in some of our archived programs, which we provided to him. We're glad to see that he's still listening. He notes in the letter, I now live in Oakland, so I get your show via podcast. I've lived in Texas and Ohio. The one thing is abundantly clear in my travels to the U.S. is that water is an issue one way or another everywhere you go. Full disclosure, I'm from L.A. originally. The problem I have is when NorCal people, or anyone for that matter, says they own the wind or water or whatever other natural resource there is and claims that another group is stealing it, as you have said before on the show. Not only are we in the same state, But you also must know that the water doesn't spring up out of the ground in Northern California. Water, like most of nature, is part of a much bigger cycle. We no more own the water here than we own the monarch butterflies on their way to Mexico. Should stop right there and say, well, Chris, I agree in part. It's hard for us to say as human beings that, you know, a group here or a group there owns the water. But just as Native Americans were awfully surprised to see white people showing up with pieces of paper that they said, (laughs) said on them that they now had the rights to the land they were living on, the real world of law and politics has some ugly surprises in it. It's been my observation in this life that uh, once various politicians and legal authorities obtain legal right to something, these sorts of philosophical arguments don't do a hell of a lot of good. Any of you who doubt that would do well to go travel down to the Owens Valley and ask some of the locals there what they think about uh, the acquisition of water rights by the city of Los Angeles. If you've ever made a trip down to uh, Death Valley, you probably have passed Owens Lake, or more correctly these days, the dry Owens Lake bed, because all that water was drained off a long time ago and sent south. I was in Lee Vining a few months ago and took a look out at Mono Lake and noted that it's a lot further down than I I recall its old level. 20 or 30 years ago, the uh, water forces from Los Angeles had to be stopped from diverting uh, the last six creeks that were feeding into Mono Stream and sending that south as well. 
Although I'd like to think that water, like most of nature, is part of a bigger cycle. And a group of people say living in the Sacramento area couldn't own it any more than the people in Los Angeles. That's just not how the real world works. Through various bits of legal chicanery, which, you know, you can look up on the internet, it turned out that the farmers and ranchers in the Owens Valley in California saw all their water rights taken from them. Coincidentally, so was their water. And I noticed a few years ago that uh, apparently water authorities in the Bay Area had some sort of right to American River water, which they then exercised by sticking more pumps and drawing more water and sending it southwest. So Chris, while I sort of philosophically may agree with you, I think in practical terms that doesn't mean much. The letter went on. What's your solution? I'm not talking about a tunnel versus open-air aqueduct. I'm talking about the larger problem of where should humans live? Do we live near the water and damage the areas where water is found? Or do we live far from where the water is found so that we don't pollute the water sources with our runoff and development and then bring the water to us? If you're like me, then you realize that our population size is the biggest issue because we can't retain our wetlands and keep the places where water originates clean while also having millions of people living there. So our only choice is to bring the water to the population rather than the other way around. The problem isn't Southern California stealing the water so much as it is the fact that we have too many people in the state, in the country, in the world. Chris, point well taken. When Jared Diamond had an exhibit on his book Collapse at the Los Angeles Museum of Natural History, I went down twice to take a look at it. Spelled out very clearly that there's enough water in Southern California to support one million people. However, 25 million people live there. And if this peripheral canal was about supplying enough water to keep those people uh, taking baths and washing dishes, and by the way, I did live in Southern California for four years, and like everybody else, I drank imported water when I was there. But what I see happening in California is what has been happening here since the time of the gold rush. People making great fortunes in real estate. When we get out of our current economic doldrums, I fully expect that real estate developers are going to do what I've watched them do my entire life, which is to buy land, build on it, and make a fortune. But we now have more than 30 million people in California, more than the nation of Canada. And since no one seems to be addressing this issue of how do we stop the population growth, uh, well, I'm content to say that maybe we ought to let water be the rate-determining step. There was a bill in the legislature a few years back that tried to ensure that all new housing developments in California had to basically had to ensure in writing that they would have a water supply. That was seen as uh, too burdensome for our uh, real estate speculators in the state. So as far as I can see, we have currently no checks and balances to stop rampant real estate development in the San Joaquin Valley and in Southern California, which I think is the whole point of the peripheral canal. We're very sorry to note that someone we would have loved to have had on this program, Mark Reisner, passed away just about the time we uh, took up with this radio business. But fortunately for all of us, uh, Mr. Reisner has left us his masterful work, Cadillac Desert, the American West and its Disappearing Water. Modern Library put the book on its list of the 100 most notable nonfiction works of the 20th century, and rightfully so. And since on this program we like to look back frequently to see what we can learn from history so that we don't make the same mistakes in the future, it would be worth uh, excerpting a bit from Mark Reisner's chapter titled Chinatown. 
Oh, and by the way, if you've never seen Roman Polanski's magnum opus uh, starring uh, Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway, do yourself a favor. And if you haven't seen it recently, do yourself a favor and see it again. It's a mesmerizing uh, private eye caper set back in the 1930s, but the real character, I suppose you'd say in the book, is water. Maybe we should say water and its accompanying uh, issues of money and power. Because in California, water, money, and power are inseparable. So this is worth probably five or six minutes to quote, I think. In Chapter 10, titled Chinatown, Mark Reisner had the following to say. And keep in mind that in California, we actually have two massive water projects, one state and one federal. Referring to 1951, Reisner said, The idea of a trans-basin water diversion had quickened the pulse of California's state engineer, A.D. Edmondson, an unreconstructed gung-ho New Deal water development type. In 1951, Edmondson, backed by the agricultural lobby, persuaded the legislature to give him enough money to undertake a, quote, inventory, unquote, of the state's water resources. Three years later, the inventory had metamorphosed into something called the California Water Plan. No sooner was the California Water Plan released than a new agency, the Department of Water Resources, was created out of a jumble of 52 agencies that had previously dealt with water and given administrative powers to match. Edmondson's scheme was mesmerizing. The largest water project ever built by a state or local government was New York City's Delaware Water System, completed during World War II. The Delaware Aqueduct was 85 miles long and entirely underground. But the California Water Plan, in its first phase alone, contemplated the movement of four times more water over a distance six times as long. He then describes how, when in the 1940s, oil companies found some rich deposits off the California coast, they cut a deal with the city of Long Beach to extract those uh, oil resources. They were going to pay what's called a severance tax of several hundred million dollars a year to the city of Long Beach. It was that point in time that the Attorney General of California decided that he was going to nullify that contract. The Attorney General was named Edmund G. Brown Sr. And about the time he voided Long Beach's Tidelands oil contract, Pat Brown developed an obsession that would remain with him for the rest of his life. Water. As his water czar, Bill Warren, was to describe it later on, the state engineer corralled Brown one day in the Capitol and implored him to do something about the water crisis. Brown grew up in San Francisco, said he wasn't aware there was any. Hadn't the Bureau just built the Central Valley Project? Yes, answered Edmondson, and that was precisely the problem. When you added a couple lanes to a freeway or built a new bridge, cars came out of nowhere to fill them. It was the same with water. The more you developed, the more growth occurred, and the faster demand grew. California was now hitched to a runaway locomotive. Edmondson told Brown, the biggest bandwagon in history is going to come rolling through with water written all over it. If you want to be elected governor, you jump on it early. Now. Reisner goes on to describe how Pat Brown knew that a lot of voters would vote against a bond issue to uh, get this water project going. Of course, Northern Californians had always resisted sending their water to L.A. There were a million voters in Northern California that were certain to go against him. The question was, how to counterbalance those votes with yes votes from Southern California. Good Republican migrants down there, uh, well, when they saw how much it would cost, they were bound to bulk. Reisner, how could he possibly win? There was only one way, Brown decided. It was to lie. 
Lie is a strong word, but in this case, it is advised, because one day Pat Brown would all but admit it himself. It was, to begin with, hard to say how much the project would cost, except that it would cost a bundle. Oroville would not only be the world's tallest dam, but its fourth most massive. San Luis, in the Coast Range foothills further south, would be the fifth most massive dam in the world, nearly two miles long. Their initial estimates were $1.8 billion. An economist for the Rand Corporation immediately tore that estimate to shreds. He noted, for instance, that uh, though the report mentioned Oroville Dam at length, it failed to include the expense of building the dam. <laughs> noted Mark Reisner, it was an extraordinary omission, to say the least. Noted Reisner, the correct figure was certainly closer to about $3 billion back in 1959, which, which is the equivalent of $13 billion when he wrote the book in 1987. Asking what state would vote for a $13 billion bond issue today, he answered, not one. Pat Brown knew that very well. That was why he decided to say that the project would cost just $1.75 billion. But uh, remember that contract that Pat Brown <laughs> voided between the city of Long Beach? Well, they got the bright idea. Let's take that, uh, let's take that $25 million we're going to get uh, out of the oil companies every year and devote that toward the California Water Project, which they've done ever since. Of course, uh, by sending water into the San Joaquin Valley, it made it possible for those same oil companies to buy up vast tracts of land and become farmers. So in a way, they were kind of getting some of their own payments back. I don't want to belabor all this, but it is worth noting that an awful lot of ag agriculture in the state is corporate, and an awful lot of it is subsidized by cheap water. Let me just mention an August 1981 study by the California Institute for Rural Studies, which looked at the property ownership in five water districts within the service area of the state project. Well, that report corroborated what the Department of Water Resources has taken great pains to point out for years. The majority of farmers receiving project water were small farmers. Of 479 identifiable owners in these districts, 291, more than half, had farm holdings of 160 acres or less. However, those farmers owned less than a third of the total acreage. The other two-thirds, which amounted to 227,000 acres, was owned by eight companies. The largest of the farmers? Chevron USA, with 38,000 acres in the immediate area. Number two? Tejon Ranch, one of the largest land empires in California. The principal stockholders of the ranch, members of the Chandler family, which owns the LA Times, the strongest voice for water development in California for 80 years. Third and fourth places, two more oil companies, Getty and Shell. Fifth place, an insurance company, Prudential's McCarthy Ranch. And so on and so on. Anyway, my answer, Chris, is that water, power, money, they're all interrelated here in California. And although I'm completely with you that we have to have some kind of uh, restrictions on population growth to make, uh, to make our water system work, we're not going to see that. At least in the opinion of this correspondent, we're not going to see that if we ensure real estate and corporate interests that we're going to have, they're going to have all the water they want down in the San Joaquin Valley and in Southern California. They will continue to make money the way they've been making money, which is by development dependent upon subsidized water. God knows, we're oversimplifying, and God knows we don't have time to talk about this at any greater length, but uh, if you haven't read Cadillac Desert, do yourself a favor and get a copy, and if you haven't read it lately, it's time to reread it.
Anyway, Chris closed the letter saying, I would love it if you stopped using the language of division, us, NorCal versus them, SoCal, and put forth some reasonable solutions. All right, Chris, I'm going to try and do that. It isn't exactly a NorCal versus SoCal issue. But I don't see it's changed much since uh, A.D. Edmondson was lobbying Pat Brown back in the 50s. When you add a couple of lanes to a freeway or build a new bridge, cars come out of nowhere to fill them. Now, as then, it was the same with water. The more you developed, the more growth occurred, and the faster demand grew. That has to stop. Unless you want to live in a state with 70 million people. Anyway, Chris, good man for writing us. Appreciate it. We may have to agree to disagree in part. And I want to thank the rest of you for sending emails related to this. We'll try to get to those in the weeks to come as well. 